Welcome to the Conversation of Money podcast. I am your host, Peter Kamalafe. This is where we talk about money and all things personal finance, where we help you make the best financial decisions possible because money is a tool and life is for living. There is a scientific reason why you are broke. And this isn't a widespread conspiracy theory. No, this is actually rooted in science. And for many of us, this is something that slides under the radar until you're well into adulthood. It definitely did for me. And to make matters worse, this is something that has been happening. It's been passed down for generations. This probably started with your great-grandparents to your grandparents to your parents and now to you. And so the question is, how do you break this cycle that you're stuck in? Are there things that you can do? As you could probably imagine, I consume a lot of financial content. And ever since my book came out in this year in March and doing the research for my book last year, I've become really fascinated with the idea of behavioral science, um, financial psychology, why, we, why and how we make our financial decisions. What truly drives our decision-making process when it comes to money? Because a lot of the time, our decision-making process is completely and utterly irrational. A lot of it is based on emotion. But where does that come from? How is it that we make poor financial decisions based on emotion? And how do we get to the point that it is so frequent and almost untethered, uncontrollable? Something that as human beings, we fight against. Now, I consume a lot of financial content and I came across this wonderful podcast um, and they were talking about this specifically. So in this episode, I want to talk specifically about this topic, the science of being broke. And I want to share some key moments with you from said podcast. Now, I will uh, signpost the podcast. I'm going to put links to the podcast that I'm taking these snippets from in the show notes if you're listening on Apple, Google, or any of the good podcasts out there. And if you're with me here on YouTube, they will also be linked in the description down below. Now, the podcast in question is called Erica taught me. It's an amazing podcast here on YouTube. She's got 1.8 million uh, subscribers at this point in time. If you're watching this, Erica, if this does, does get back to you, an amazing, amazing episode with Brad uh, Klontz. But I want to drop you in first and foremost with, you know, one of the first questions that Erica uh, asked. I'm going to cut back with my perspective because I found this to be so, so true. And it's all about our earliest memories of money. This is dating back to when we were children. This is the question. So I imagine that the earliest money memories that we have in childhood impact how we then go on to manage our money and how we are with our money when we grow up. Is that true? It's absolutely true. So we have early experiences around money. And um, for many of us, they are you know innocuous. Like they're just things that just your parents said or things that happened, things we don't really think about. Some are really profound and like almost traumatic, but we all have these early experiences and there's so much value in, in digging into thinking about, you know, what is my earliest memory around money? What's my most joyful memory around money? My most painful memory around money? Because what we develop on top of those are what we would call money scripts, these beliefs around money. We're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to make sense of how money works in our lives. And it, there's so much value in tracing those back. Now, the, the big thing too is some of these ex experiences 
your parents had or your grandparents had or your great grandparents had. And that's where it gets kind of creepy and also kind of fun because many times we're just playing out a script that was written for us generations ago. So this is really, really interesting. And in my book, I talk about my earliest memory of money. And that was when I was five, six years old. And the fact that my next door neighbor, Glenn, when I was in foster care, his dinners smelled so much better than ours. And he was having steaks and lamb chops, healthy food, healthy produce. And in our household, we couldn't actually afford that. We were having beers on toast, spaghetti hoops, so on and so forth. And as Brad said here, it was completely and utterly innocuous to start off with. Quite harm harmless, right? Not something that, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. But actually, as I got older and I started to earn good money, it really, really did have an impact in terms of how I saw money how I interpreted the importance of money, the function of money. And as innocuous as it was back then, I found out that my earliest memories of money really did form my mindset, my view of the world, my view of money, the purpose of money in the world. And for me, it embedded this sense of scarcity. It embedded this sense that I couldn't afford to have good dinners when we were five to six years old, and therefore money was scarce. And so growing up, scarcity comes along in my mindset. When I start making good money, I treat money with that same mindset of scarcity. So therefore, what I should be doing now that I've got this is spend it because it might not be around here for much, much longer. And in this episode with um, Brad, Erica actually talks a little bit about to ask the question for Brad to elaborate on a scarcity mindset, what it means, whether it can be good or bad, and also comment on the opposite of a scarcity mindset, which is an abundance mindset. And it's really interesting what he had to say. Here it is. You're mentioning scarcity. Obviously, that doesn't sound very good to have a scarcity mindset. <laughs> Ironically, though, what, what our studies have found is that people who are the most anxious around money, who are sort of worried about the future, we would call it a future orientation, they're the ones who tend to have the most money. So, so there's some irony there around, and if you think about, think about a squirrel who's not really worried about surviving the winter. It's like, well, you're not going to run around and gather nuts and hide them, and then you'll probably starve to death. So there's a lot of value in having sort of that future orientation and being worried about not having enough for the future because that inspires you to you know, delay gratification, to save, to invest, but you can take it too far. So where does the abundance mindset come into place? And what kinds of people, what kind of childhood experiences form people that have an abundance mindset? And then is that a good thing later in life? Yeah, first of all, fabulous question. A scarcity mindset. Let's look at the psychology behind a scarcity mindset. So quite often people are coming from poverty or grandparents who are in poverty. Like, like one of the things that can happen is that you can grow up middle class, but your parents and grandparents grew up in the Great Depression or were so worried about money that you are living a middle class life, but you feel like you're poor and you feel like, there'll never be enough money. So one of the beliefs underneath that scarcity mindset is this belief that there'll never be enough money. Now, what's interesting about that belief, around all beliefs around money, they are 100% true in a particular context, right? So mm -hmm. all these beliefs, the craziest beliefs around money make total sense in, in some sort of context. The, they become dysfunctional when our, our situation changes and we're not able to change our beliefs. So the belief there will never be enough money um, in its extreme will lead to one of two patterns. So number one, you're going to be like an Ebenezer Scrooge type hoarder, 
super frugal, cheap, because you're worried there'll never be enough money. And um, now it's good for your net worth to have that mindset. It's not good for your experience of life, mm. right? Or another, another behavioral pattern around there'll never be enough money is that why bother trying? So, and this, this is a real dangerous one. And people come from poverty. It's, it makes logical sense why you would end up with this. There'll never be enough money. So why bother trying to save? Why bother investing? If I, if I have some credit on my credit card, I'm going to go spend it all. There'll never be enough money anyway. So the scarcity mindset can lead to two different directions based on what behaviors um, ensue. And an abundance mindset is where th this can also backfire also. I've, I've definitely seen people who have this abundance mindset, which you would say, well, there's always enough money. And it, it's a great mindset like to have a friend like that, right? Like if, if you're for friends, you have an abundance mindset. I know you're just going to pay for dinner, you know, <laughs> everything's fine. I'm going to get great gifts. But if it's not true that you're, you're living a life where you have an abundance of money or an unending amount of money, you're going to quickly get in trouble with it. It's really interesting him talk about, you know, scarcity and abundance. Like I've already said, I definitely came up with a scarcity mindset. And I meet a lot of people who talk about having an abundance mindset. And what Brad is, is eloquently put across here is that there are merits in both and demerits in both as well. And I think from my experience coming up with a scarcity mindset, I think I've been able to manage it a little bit. Yes, I know that I've overspent and I was impulsive because in my head, when I earn good money, it meant that it might not be here tomorrow, so let's enjoy it right now. But there is also a, a balancing out between scarcity mindset and an abundance. If you, if you automatically just assume that money is always going to be there, it's always going to be abundant, and in reality, it's not necessarily true. You can still end up broke. You can still end up in a position where you don't actually have enough money to deal with the day-to-day. -day. And so I feel that there's a middle ground to be met there. And for me, I can speak for myself, come up with a with a, a scarcity mindset. One thing that I've been able to do is try to identify the triggers that made me, for example, go and spend money on things that I didn't really need in hindsight. Uh, to make me feel good, to make me want to fit into the environment in which I found myself. And we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute because there was a great question about our sense of belonging. But our mindset is so, so important. And our mindsets are actually informed by our very, very early lessons in life. And that mindset can be exuded or at least um, exhibited in the way our habits are manifested. And it's an interesting quote that I came across, which I actually wanted to open this episode with, but it will fit in seamlessly here as well. There was a, a saying by FM Alexander, and the saying is this, people don't decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. That is so true, particularly when it comes to your finances, because if you did come up with a scarcity mindset, how do you break free from that? Because the scarcity mindset is going to mean that you're going to you're going to have habits around your finances that may not necessarily be healthy, be productive in order for you to be able to create some kind of financial security and wealth. Now, for me, scarcity mindset, one thing that I'm absolutely petrified of is being homeless again. And so whilst I've been able to manage my scarcity mindset, one thing that Brad said is, is definitely true for me. I tend to hoard. I tend to make sure that I have more money in an emergency fund that I necessarily need because I always want to know that that money is there as a safety blanket, as something to protect me from ever being homeless again. And 
that's just my experience. And if you have a skeptic mindset, I would I would strongly encourage you to think about how you actually go about managing that because it is really, really important. And in this conversation about the science of being broke, I think the biggest, the biggest factor which I want to talk about is the fact that a lot of us, regardless of whether there's an abundance or a scarcity mindset, we all interact with our money with, I guess, social pressure, the need to want to fit in. And there was a beautiful question posted in this um, podcast that I want to share with you right now. And it's all about this sense of belonging, the sense that we are in competition with our peers, with our with our surroundings, right? With our barometer of what success might look like. When I was coming up, I was listening to, you know, the the rappers were my idols, Biggie, Mace, Puff Daddy, Tupac, Nas. And the way they demonstrated success was through flashy cars and jewelry and Rolexes and and so on and so forth. If we're if we're truly going through life with that kind of barometer, that in itself is very, very very, very unhealthy and is a key factor in this science of actually being broke. But here's the question um, and response uh, that was posted in this podcast. You were talking about this concept of the reason we tend to overspend within our circles is because we want to, we feel the need to belong. We want to show that if your neighbor can buy this beautiful $500,000 house, well, so can I. If if they can drive this beautiful car, well, so can I. And I know how that feels because I remember in high school, all the cool kids, they were wearing these American Eagle jeans and I really, really wanted it. But obviously my parents were like, no, no, that's too expensive. And then we went to a thrift store And I found these American Eagle jeans, so I bought them and I just felt so proud and so excited. And that need to belong continued even after high school. In college, I was going out and spending all of my paycheck from working at the local subway. I was spending it all at the mall on these shoes so that I could be like the cool one with the cool shoes. And that need to belong is deep and strong. How do we get out of that? Or is there not a way out? Well, it really does depend on your comparison group. I mean, so that that's that's one of the hacks is like come up with a different comparison group. I mean, that, <laughs> that's just the bottom line. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about sharing the information around how do people become wealthy and how do they actually spend? Because what I what I have done is I've, I now associate in my own brain sort of lavish displays of status objects as being an indication that somebody probably doesn't have a lot of net worth. Or number two, that they feel bad about themselves in some way. So they do want people to look at them in a certain way, which tells you that they have a little bit more insecurity, you know, which, which is probably what you had around the genes. And yeah. I mean, it's certainly like, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to disparage people who do this. Like when I got out of grad school, I was 29 years old. I owed $100,000 in student loan debt. I was broke. And I immediately went out and bought like a luxury watch, an Omega watch. I went and bought my mom a real thick like um, Hawaiian heirloom bracelet. I was living in Hawaii at the time, like solid gold. I mean, I, I was like, I was doing exactly all the things that I try to caution people against, and, but I know exactly why I did it. I, I grew up poor. I was sick of being poor. I, I wanted to show the world I made it. I wanted to show how m- my mom, how much I appreciated all of her sacrifice in her life to help me get where I was. And, um, but on, in any objective standard, it was <laughs> the absolute wrong thing to do. I mean, I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the money. And I thought that this is what rich people did. And so we see a lot of that. We see a lot of people who um, grew up 
in humble beginnings who have, have gone to school, perhaps, you know, they're now making $100,000 and they immediately go out and do all the things they think that rich people do. So they go, they buy a luxury watch, they buy an expensive suit, they uh, lease a very, a very expensive luxury car, thinking that this is what people do. It's actually not what most people do. I don't know about you, but that makes sense when you hear it from another person, right? And this sense of belonging, look, for me, I, I look back to my days in Canary Wharf. I didn't belong there. I didn't have a university degree. At least I felt that I didn't belong there. Um, I was surrounded by people who were more experienced than I was, had better educations than I was. And so that kind of facilitated the fact that I would go out and, and buy suits to fit in. I would buy things to fit in because this is what everyone did on the floor. And this is regardless of the fact that you know, my own personal circumstances didn't dictate that I would be able to spend this kind of money. Yes, I was earning it, but I couldn't re I could afford it from a monetary point of view, but I couldn't inform it in afford it from a long-term point of view. And when you think of it this way, you start to really kind of ask the question of we're programmed. How do we get programmed like this? And again, it is down to our very first memories of money, the mindset that it essentially forms. And this, I guess, impression that this is what wealthy people do. And the reality is that this isn't necessarily what wealthy people do. This is in, re in relation, in relative relation to maybe their earnings, which happens to be so far up there that these little things that we buy that cost us a lot of money when we don't necessarily have that level of, in of, level of income is huge in comparison. And so there's relativ relativity at play here. And oftentimes, because of social media, we don't necessarily fully appreciate that relativity uh, plays uh, a part in this. And Brad goes on to, to um, talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, when it comes to status, because that's what a lot of us are chasing. Certainly, if you are male in the world today, there are so many pressures. You're probably chasing status to be seen in the nicest car, to be seen wearing a Rolex, to be wearing, you know, the greatest and the best looking fashion there is because of what it makes you look like, because the status it allows you, people will say, to get into better rooms to attract beautiful women, right? The, the first is a little is a little debatable, by the way. It doesn't mean you always get into better rooms. And I would get I would hazard a guess and actually argue to say that that isn't always true. 100% of the time. The latter is also debatable, but that's for another episode on this podcast. But it means that we should we should really start to question some of this stuff. Status. What does status actually mean? Does status equal success? And if that is the case, in your opinion, what does success look like? And does it really manifest itself in the physical? Real questions that we need to ask here. But this is what Brad had to say about what wealthy people do. Uh, the traits of wealthy people. And it's very, very fascinating to hear. People who are most focused on status have the least amount of money mm -hmm. and, and are more likely to have grown up poor. And so ironically, when you ask ultra wealthy people, they would say that they would actually tell you they make less than they actually do. When you ask people who make less, they're actually likely to tell you they make more than they actually do. So it's so it's it's a big eye, you know, I mean, when you see social media, this should just blow your mind. So so the cue is to, when people are really, really promoting themselves as having all this stuff, you got to have in the back of your mind, oh, studies show that those people who do that 
actually end up having less. And if you look behind the curtain, a lot of times they're trying to sell something, right? So yeah. they're trying to sell this image. And the other thing too, and this is this is really profound, it's, it's called um, locus of control. So this is a mindset. And locus of control basically means location of control. So there's an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. So the question is this, the outcomes you're getting in life, are they because of you or because of things outside of you? And um, this goes back to that learned helplessness stuff, but every study that's ever been done around income, wealth, success, bouncing back quickly after a tragedy, academic success, people who have an internal locus of control. So they say, the outcomes I'm getting in life are because of me. The mistakes that I've made in life are because of me. You know, my lack of satisfaction in my relationship, I have an impact on that. It turns out that having that internal locus control is associated with success in every area of life versus focusing more on external factors for why, why you are where you are. I don't know what more to say, really, to be honest. I, you know, when it definitely comes to the status, the status, as we would say here in the UK and UK English, that is such an important thing. Again, what does success look like to you? Does that equate to status specifically, that outward manifestation of what we think success looks like? But more importantly, locus of control this is something that i'm seeing more of in society today you know we we expect the government to come to our rescue we're very very quick to blame external factors on why we aren't at a at a particular spot or a particular place in career or in personal life or whatever you know there's a lot of blaming of external factors when really we should be thinking about what we can do internal factors why are we not where we want to be why do we feel the way we feel and what can we do about it? I often talk about controlling the controllables. This is really what this alludes to, what it, what it speaks to. What are the things that we can control day to day to change our circumstances, particularly with the economic backdrop right now, inflation, interest rates, there's now a war in Israel. I mean, I hope it doesn't escalate, but if it does, the the impact of that could be dire from an economic point of view and from a day-to-day point of view for us here in the UK and for people globally, not as severe as obviously the people in Gaza who are suffering right now and you know the Israelis and the loss that they've actually felt. But we need to control our controllables. And having that that internal locus of control is extremely important in terms of helping us be in a better place than we are right now. And so look. There is a science to being broke, and I hope that you picked up something here. For me, it's all about trying to address what your earliest memories of money are. I speak about this in my book. I share with you my earliest memories of money. There were two instances. If you read the book, you know what the second one is. Understanding what mindset we we grow up, we grew up with, and how that mindset manifests itself when it comes to our financial habits, how we decide to make decisions, why we make those decisions. If we're able to do that, then it's relatively easy to understand or at least be able to identify maybe the triggers that get us to these spaces. But we need to do the work. We need to control the controllables. Now, for the last six months or so, there have been behavioral assessments on my channel here on YouTube and in the show notes of the podcast episode. And that's because I've been so fascinated with this. I've tried to understand my money personality how I make my own financial decisions and my financial efficacy. And if you're interested in knowing what yours is, 
The behavioral assessments are linked in the show notes and on the description part of the YouTube uh, channel. Go and check them out. They're $9.99 plus VAT, so $11.99 altogether. And for example, with your money personality status, it will tell you what kind of money personality you have. It will tell you the pros and the cons. It will give you some tips on how you go about maybe fixing some of the negative manifestations of that money personality. Same thing for goes for financial efficacy. There are four tests altogether. I'd encourage you, go check that out. That is your first step to trying to understand the psychology behind why you're making some of the decisions and it will help you fix and at least move forward from where you are right now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, money is a tool, life is still living. If you did find value in this, make sure that you share this with someone who may also need to see it. Leave us a comment on YouTube and leave us a review as well if you're listening on one of the podcast episodes. I will speak to you next time.